I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening uh, again to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to cover a little more territory uh, this evening as we move to verse 11 of chapter 1, as we look at the repetition of nature and of generations and how we are to live in a world in which things just seem to move on. The repetition of all things, how even when we labor, uh, that labor seems to be surrendered to time. I'll read Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse 2 to verse 11. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What is it, or what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, it's new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to You, and we ask that by Your strength You might give us wisdom, that You might reveal to us the majestic truths that are here unlocked for us by Your Spirit. And so speak, O Lord, for Your servants. We listen. And by your Spirit, give to us life and life abundant. We pray in your name. Amen. A number of years ago now, we incorporated in the life of the church some small groups. And one of the first books that we went through was Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Uh, This is a phenomenal work on, in my opinion, the the real takeaway was relating the knowledge of God to the knowledge of men and how we are to think about what God knows and what we know. And Packer has this very helpful illustration of a switchboard that you would find in an underground subway, a railroad. And on that you see all of the, the, the routes of these particular trains and where they are going Man seeks to, inquiring of God, get a glimpse of the roots. And God says, that's not for us to understand. Packer makes the point that we are not those who can see the switchboard. God sees it. What we must do is we must trust the one who is good and who has good providence and that God's goodness is for those who love Him. 
And so Ecclesiastes is not one of those books of wisdom in which this wise king, Solomon, seeks to grant to us some sort of hidden insight, a a, a hidden Gnostic kind of decoder ring where if we read it the right way and if we hold our mouth just right, have you heard that phrase? We'll get it. And when we unlock it like the movie National Treasure, this door opens and then there we'll find the treasure of God's hidden wisdom. It's right here. It's plain for all to see. And in fact, if there is something that unlocks the hidden wisdom of God, it is the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the hermeneutical key that unlocks all wisdom and instruction and understanding. That means this. What I mean is it is through the cross of Christ Jesus that we lay hold of and understand the hidden depths of the wisdom of God. Now, last week, I introduced this idea that Ecclesiastes is really a a sort of help for us to understand what life is really about. It is the cycle of life. It is life under the sun. It is do it again. And i got to tell you, that was convicting for me all week. Do it again. Do it again. And I see the sun come up. And I'm sitting there either writing or reading or maybe I'm getting up a little bit after the sun comes up now that we've lost an hour. And I'm thinking, breakfast. Get the kids ready for school. And it's this harried existence, this hurried existence. It's the frustration that we allow to creep into our hearts because it's the same. And so I look at my beautiful spouse and I say, let's just go away together. (laughs) But do you know what happens? I'm away, and you know, at some point I just want to go home. (laughs) And then I want to go away, and then I want to go home. It's just coming and going. It is the cycles of life. Now, Ecclesiastes is a collection really of four separate longer poems. Uh, One in chapter 1 and 2, chapters 3 and 4 and 5, chapters 6, 7 and 8, and then chapters 8 through 12. There are these four movements that build with these um, rising conclusions. It's meant to be read together. And it's meant to be a guide for how we should think of our lives and how we should live in light of the fact that all is vanity. Now, I have a beef. I have a bone to pick with the guys who translated my particular translation. And perhaps when you hear the word vanity, you think, do you think positive or negative? I tend to think negative. And we're going to look at what that word vanity means in light of nature and in light of the generations of men. Now, this week, I was feeling especially witty. And you can tell by the incredibly hilarious title of my sermon. And when I told my wife, I've got a great title, she just rolled her eyes when I said it. Hebel without a cause. I mean, some of you are familiar with... No. Anyway. Hebel or Hevel is the Hebrew word for vanity. Or vanity is a honestly bad English translation of the word for Hevel. And that is what I want to look at this evening. The meaning of that word Hevel or Hebel and what our problem has been in the church, not only in translating it, but in seeking to apply this word to our lives. So, first point, Hevel of Hevels, and then secondly, what our problem 
has been. Now, it is very easy to get Solomon wrong. It is easy because we're not used to this kind of straight talk. I want to hear something happy. I want to hear something cheerful. I want to hear something that will tell me everything is going to be okay. And Solomon is saying, things are just the way they are. It is inescapable. Now, we live in a world today and in many churches that seem to prize big gestures even if we know they're empty. We want the big gesture. We want the big thing, but really Christianity and faithfulness to the Lord consists in faithfulness in the little things over time. Now, I remember hearing this from my father. This was the mantra. And my family growing up, if you're faithful in the little things, God will give you the big things. Make your bed. No! Pick up your laundry off the floor and put it in the basket. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do the little things. Now, this is not a book about chores per se, but what it is about is the recognition that the kingdom of God consists in little things, small accomplishments, tasks that are often missed, nameless persons. And it is a book that we need now more than ever. Because oftentimes in Christianity, we're looking for the 40-yard bomb and not the ground game. We don't seek to do things over and over again and embrace the repetition and the monotony of life under the sun. Now what Solomon is endeavoring to do is to reveal to us in very clear terms that nature, labor, family, love, work, all of these things have a time and a season and they go on and they go on, and they go on. It's life outside the garden under the fall. But even then, life inside the garden was going to be a life filled with repetition, a life in which if you strike the tuning fork, it requires that at some point, as those molecules begin to slow in their movement, by the influence of outside forces, you have to hit the tuning fork again. You eat, you process, you eat again. You wake, you work, you sleep, and you do it again. Now, oftentimes, what we get wrong is this. We get this part wrong. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, which is really hebel of hevels. So, super vanity. It is an expression of deep Vanity. Well, what does that mean? Now, if some of you are using the NIV, I'm sorry, not because it is in whole a bad translation, but they really miss the mark here. The NIV translates this term, hevel, as meaningless. So this is what I want you to do to test as to whether or not that's a good translation. Husbands, next time you go in the kitchen, this sounds so sexist, and your wives are doing the dishes, or let's just go ahead and turn that example around. And you go in there and you say, thanks for nothing. Really? Meaningless, meaninglessness. 
That is how the editor of the NIV chose to translate vanity. Even vanity is not a good English translation, or at least our sort of approach to that word is not informed by a biblical understanding of the word hevel. Life under the sun isn't meaningless. It can't be meaningless, can it? In Psalm 144, we read, My loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me, Lord, what is man that you, are, that you take knowledge of him? Or the son of man that you are mindful of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow down your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains and they shall smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. It is here that the psalmist touches upon that word hevel in a way that provides for us a better understanding of what the word hevel, or in many of your Bibles, vanity means. It doesn't mean exuberance or sort of something that is not necessary, a vain endeavor. It means short breath. Right now, kids, if you were to walk up to one of those windows, I would imagine, and you went and go, what would happen? Maybe you clean your glasses like this. You blow on the lenses, and for just a moment, vapor that comes forth from your lungs touches the glass, and because of the temperature change, especially in the cold months, you get this fogged up glass. And as soon as it comes... It disappears. That's your life. This is what James says in James 4, 5. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Yes, men have lived long on the earth, but a particular man has not. In fact, even now, if you live to a ripe old age, 100, 115, what does that count in light of the generations that have come before, and potentially the generations that will come after. That is what Solomon is saying. You are, you're here and then you're gone. The flower that fades, the grass that withers, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. In fact, this is why this uh, Solomonic wisdom that we find in Proverbs is better the house of mourning than the house of rejoicing because we learn our end when we go to our friends' funerals. We learn what man is and the numbering and the temporary nature of his days. Many Christians see Solomon as having a crisis of faith. I think Solomon is at his most clear in terms of expressing to the Christian, the saint, the believer, what life is really about. He's not a pessimist. He isn't not writing like a Christian. He's not talking about how to flee the futility of life. Life is futile, and so just be untouched, unfazed. Enter into a, a sort of stoic, philosophical approach. Oftentimes, these are the practical outworkings of Ecclesiastes mistranslated. It isn't meaningless. This book of wisdom literature is not a negative example of how to think, but rather the words of a wise man. Let us think of our lives as short, as mist, 
as vapor. That is what life under the sun is like. Now I'm going to quote from a commentator that I've been using who's been of great encouragement to me. Jeffrey Myers wrote a, not an exegetical commentary, just a, a wonderful, easy-to-read commentary, and this is what he says. Life in and of itself is unable to supply the key to the questions of identity, meaning, purpose, value, and destiny. Only God holds the key, and He must be trusted with it. He does not make copies of the key for us to use. This feels a little bit like Packer there, doesn't it? You do not get to keep God's key in your back pocket. Sooner or later, if you are a believer, you are going to have to actually trust God to keep the key to life. And so when we look at this text, we speak of the toils of men, the generations, nature itself, whether something is new or not. What would Solomon say even about our own day? Ooh, a cell phone. Okay, so what? We've been communicating as human beings forever. You know what the least effective means of communication is? The cell phone. Nothing beats face-to-face. And as soon as something is new, we look at it and say, well, it's old again. I mean, I can remember when the compact disc came out. I can remember dubbing one tape to another tape on my friend's stereo. Click, record, play, record, or whatever. I can't remember now. And then there were CDs. And just the crispness of that sound. And then I got to college and I became enamored with records. Because they sound better. I guess. But do they? I don't know. It all sounds like music. What has come before will come again. There is a cycle to all of these things. The problem is the unbeliever endeavors to live for the moment, for the weekend, for the pleasure itself as an end, and not a manifestation of God's favor. What I'm saying is that we cannot feast with any real joy or revel at the good gifts of God without remembering grace and mercy and peace that actually make the feasting possible. This is how we rise above, in essence, the monotony of it all. That we see God in creation, working and interacting And so our worship of God gives all of these things heft and weight. When I look at a piece of artwork, I don't just celebrate the craftsmanship. I think of the the mind and the heart of God that is given to the sons of men, the ability to paint, to draw, to make music, to sculpt, to build beautiful buildings. Christian celebrates these things for the right reasons. Go read the Christian Manifesto by Schaefer. In it, he purports this idea that it is the Christian alone who is able to be a true humanitarian, a true appreciator of the arts, because the art is never put above the Creator, but always in its proper place. Francis Schaefer is so good on these things. Christ is the one who prepares and serves the feast. And so the Christian eats, drinks, dances, delights in his or her spouse, laughs in the face of future because he or she is tethered to the one that sits above the sun. Even now, the richest man in the world, 
and I know it fluctuates from time to time, is trying to move men to Mars. At one point, the idea of sailing to the New World was impossible. It's been done already. All these things have been done again. So what are we to think of Hevel? That our lives are short, but they are not meaningless. And if we endeavor to find meaning in those things that are passing away, we too will find an end, a life that passes away. So what has our problem been? And I want to try to diagnose to some degree, where we have gone wrong, oftentimes with interpreting Ecclesiastes, and why oftentimes we read this book and it makes us sad. Well, I think part of it is the rise of Christian fundamentalism in the West. We think Solomon is scolding us. And that what Solomon is doing, and he is saying, it's just not worth it. He's cynical. He's seen it all, It's the VH1 behind the music. He's had the girls. He's had the food. He's had the drink, the cars, the mansion, all of these things. And he just says, it's just not worth it. And so now he's a a cynic. He's got nothing left. But what we actually find is Solomon having repented of his wayward life and providing for the believer a kind of blueprint Solomon is not scolding us. Now, I think part of this is the pietism of our modern age, which was sort of or is grounded upon the fundamentalism that grew out of the man-centered Second Great Awakening. Just go do a little bit of church history. And the Second Great Awakening basically said the, the, the real meat and potatoes of the Christian life is the emotive experience that happens at the revival And that true Christian piety is not in embracing, but in denying certain things. Oftentimes we refer to the modern Christian and their piety as a teetotaler. You've heard this phrase. I don't drink, I don't cuss or chew or run around with girls that do. Now obviously some of that is wrong. There's some wisdom to that. But I'm talking about the Christian curmudgeon. The Christian that is more in line with the Grinch than the mayor of Whoville. And I think if Solomon were alive, he would be the mayor of Whoville. Who celebrates, who rejoices in the good gifts. He may even put Christmas lights on his house. Not for reasons of idolatry. He wouldn't be bowing down to the tree in his living room, but he would rejoice in the good gifts of God, in their proper place. And so oftentimes we look at this book and we say, all right, it falls in line with this idea. We are being scolded for looking too much at the things of this world and finding our treasure in them. Listen, I love a good steak. And you should too. Maybe you don't want to eat steak. A good soy burger. I don't, I can't even say that with a straight face. Maybe you enjoy a great visit to the museum. And I've been to some museums and some of the displays. I remember seeing David in Florence and thinking, man, that is the pinnacle of human artistry. It's unbelievable to see it in person. 
I've seen these things and I think, not what an idol, but what gifts God has given to men. Now, these things can be worshipped. We can make anything an idol. This is an idol for many people. And it's not even beautiful, is it? It's ugly. And it dies every 24 hours. Our problem will not be solved by fundamentalism. Our problem will not be solved by mere pietism. No, nor hedonism. That is the opposite of pietism or fundamentalism. Hedonism says, well, if we're all going to die, let's eat, drink, and be merry. But there is a balance. What is that balance? The balance is this tethering to the principle that God sits above all things and He rules and reigns our lives in such a way that He gives us opportunity after opportunity to build a holy edifice to Him that will stand the test of time. Solomon is endeavoring to train us to enjoy life, both the blessings and even the times that are felt curses, death, life, Sorrow, suffering, this burgeoning hope of the resurrection that we carry in our chests all the time. It should beat loudly with the melody that is set forth to us in the gospel. We haven't learned the lesson from nature that we ought. It is the unending march. We see this in our text. The wind blows to the south, goes around in the north, around and around, and goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. What I mean is this. Last year, at this time, I got my mower, I went down into the woods, and I cut down every weed I could find so that we could open up our seasonal disc golf course. (laughs) Do you know what happened the next summer? The jungle. And so now this fall, I have to go down there with my mower and mow it all down again. And you know what will happen this summer? It will come back. Here is the frustration that lies with man. We want to control that thing. Maybe you've heard the phrase, we need to work together so that we can save the planet. What? How? How are you going to do that? Well, I am going to buy this car. And this car is part battery, motor, part gas tank, and engine. And by doing that, I will do my part to save the planet as I throw my McDonald's wrapper out the window. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's this, it is this cycle of men seeing this existential threat that they can, with their human effort, say, we're going to solve this problem together. Let's do it. It is the arrogance of the modern mind. But you know what will happen? Well, nothing except increased taxation. That's all this ever amounts to, right? Greater encroachment by those who are endeavoring to change things. But at the end of the day, what will happen? Empires come and empires go. 
Policies come and policies go. Efforts come and efforts go. And what we are being taught by Solomon is, guess what? You mow the grass, you mow it again. You build a wall and it falls down. You raise a family and in a generation they're gone. What are you going to do? Well, you keep going. And for the unbeliever, there is this nihilistic desperation that creeps in. Well, what's the point? What is the point? And so Christ speaks to that pointedly in the Gospels where He says, Do not lay up treasures on earth where things are destroyed, but lay up your treasures in heaven. So let's say we go to Mars. Mars is under the sun. (laughs) I don't care if you leave the Milky Way and you go to another solar system. It's under another sun. And all of those things are ultimately part of God's creation. And all of creation, apart from God's sovereign interaction, like that top you spin or the thing you wind, slowly comes to an end. There is but one way to have a life that counts even in the repetition, and that is to be anchored to the one, to live for the one, to seek to glorify the one who takes our actions and brings about eternal, everlasting fruit. We must not be untethered from Scripture. Solomon is anchoring us, not scolding us, because we live among people that say, Man is the measure of all things. But what we must confess is Psalm 144, what is man that you are mindful of him? Have we saved anything? I mean, really, what have you built that cannot be torn down in a generation? When all this stuff recently came out about Facebook and the the sort of behind-the-scenes person, the tell-all whatever his name is, Zuckerberg lost billions in personal wealth. Wealth that took months to accumulate was gone in two weeks. It's just gone. Now, I don't know what that means, really. Those numbers are almost impossible for me to understand, but I know this. It does not take much for all that a man has built to have his empire crumble. Go to the Colosseum. I can remember when the stadium that they built for the Olympics in 1996, where the Braves played for a number of years, is no longer the house of the Atlanta Braves. I'm thinking, isn't that thing like brand new? Which is sort of how you talk as you get older. Wasn't that just a few years ago? No! It's almost 30 years ago. Well, why do they build new stadiums? Because they can. Because men love to erect idols to their idols. They love to erect houses for the things they worship. And you know what will happen? Those beautiful stadiums, they will crumble away to nothing. And in 2,000 years, the Brave Stadium will hold up a lot less, worse than the, the, the Colosseum. Without a tether to the eternal God, a personal God who has revealed Himself, everything is... Hebel without a cause. But we have a cause. And that cause is glorying in and expanding the kingdom of Christ Jesus. If everything is Hebel, then what is left? 
It is to rejoice and delight in the Lord. To rejoice and delight in the wife of your youth. To rejoice and delight in your job, your children. To inject into the monotony of life a purpose that will endure for all eternity. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we do ask this evening.